Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 42 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, I am here with Chef Steph Hedrick, currently executive chef at the Lynn Hall, mm-hmm. uh, formerly executive chef at the Women's Club, mm-hmm. 25 plus years in the Minneapolis food service and scene. And I still have great skin. It's amazing. <laughs> does it feel like 25 <laughs> years or does that number come across as like mind blowing? Um, I really, I like to walk that out every once in a while, you know, and just say, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years, but, um, I grew up in a family that has food everywhere. My stepmom is first generation Italian American. My mom is an amazing baker. My dad loves to make breakfast. So food was just always a part of my life growing up. And when I figured out at 15 that I could get a dishwashing job and then like do it for real for a living, that's all I ever wanted to do. So it, it, this is just my life. This is what I knew from the start. This was the path you're taking. Yeah. That's, that's something that not a lot of people have. Right? And that's, I mean, that's a really cool thing to have at such a young age to know that this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah. I It was just very intentional. I mean, I never looked back. I, I've never wanted to do anything else except be a rock star. But, <laughs> you know, that that has its ups and downs. So, <laughs> At 15, what was the first dishwashing job you got? Bridgman's on a... Was that County Road B in Roseville, Minnesota? And I'd ride my little mountain bike down there every weekend and uh, dishwash, and I got really good at it. So I'd get all my dishes done, and then I'd pop my head in the kitchen, and I made the grill cook teach me all of his things. So that it used to be that the manager would take over for the grill cook when he went on his breaks, and I made it so that I took over on his breaks when when he went on break so the manager didn't have to do it anymore. So what attracted, uh, this is similar in the coffee industry because you find a lot of people will get a barista job thinking it's going to be a super sexy job. They get into it, realize most of it is a lot of grunt work, the same thing over and over and over, like huge, massive lines and people not super happy with you. What was it at 15, you get a dishwashing job and you continue to think, oh yeah, no, I want to definitely keep doing this. Um, gosh. I think I really, I, I love high stress environments. I love um, just, I, I really love doing things that I shouldn't be good at or that I feel are a challenge. I go, I go head first into it. And so when it's time to, uh, you know, figure out a solution to any problem, I just have this crazy tenacity that probably I should blame my mom for. She put herself through medical school in the early 70s, graduated high school in 69 and put herself through medical school. And so she's a pharmacist and um, and just never let up, you know, and just said, I'm doing this. And, this, you know, she never raised me and my sisters to feel like, oh, I can't do that or... I'm going to get dirty and hot. Like it's so almost when someone tells you, you should hate this. This is dishwashing. This isn't for you. You're 15. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, this yeah. makes me want to do it even more. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Here's something I've found of a lot of chefs, especially someone who's gotten, been in it as long as you, uh, worked your way up all the way to executive chef from dishwashing. Do you find yourself uh, seeking flow states? Are you familiar oh. with that term? Totally. Yeah. 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 Um. Definitely. I mean, I, I love efficiency. I love it when I can just walk in and do my day and it's just almost like a meditation. Exactly. I love it. 
Totally. You get to that point of like sous chef and some people go, some people get into like coffee or uh, into the food industry thinking, oh, every day is going to be like this creative. I'm going to be coming up with new plates and be pursuing and creating these small one time dishes. It's like, no, a lot of it's going to be the preparation that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people that find that flow state and like into it. Mm-hmm. are the people that end up making it more so than someone who might be really talented, but yeah. just doesn't have that. Yeah. Well, and at this point in my career, it's um, not so much teaching myself how to do it or to find uh, a rhythm. It's teaching everyone around me. So from the guy I hired yesterday to my sous chef, to my kitchen managers, to uh, whoever I'm working with, it's getting them to the next level now. And, um, because it's not that I know everything, but I learn from teaching them and vice versa. And um, that's really what I'm really into now. And um, as long as they can go through their day and be super successful, that's kind of my new flow state, you know. Uh, And uh, just thinking. I do a lot more thinking. I do a lot more cerebral work than actual labor-intensive work now. It's like about systems and ordering and talking to purveyors and setting all of that stuff up, talking to farmers. And the impact you can have that the better you are at that, the better everyone around you Mm -hmm. benefits and their lives get Mm -hmm. better in their daily work. Mm -hmm. So from executive chef where you are now at the Lynn Hall, Mm -hmm. 15 years old, washing dishes. Run me through that 25-year path. (laughs) How long do we have? We have as long as we want. (laughs) So, yeah, that was Bridgman's, and um, I lied to them, and I said I was 16, so I technically wasn't supposed to work for them, but now I think there's only one Bridgman's left, so I think it's okay to let that cat out of the bag. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I I learned to cook there as far as, like, industrial cook. Um, you know, I could cook at home, but it's a whole different ball of wax. So then um, I had a friend who was a cook at the Baker Square in um, Roseville, and uh, he was just this punk rock guy, and I was like, I want to cook, and he's like, "Uh, I don't know if you want to cook, because, I mean, the line cooks in the late 90s were, let's see, this is actually the mid-90s, were, you know, not the nicest guys, (laughs) and they're kind of gross, and um, not really the place where you'd want like a 16 17 year old girl to be hanging around you know (laughs) but I was like no I really want to do this this is what I want to do and I can handle it and so I got a dishwashing job and I was like I want to cook I want to cook on the line so eventually um, I was there for like nine months as a dishwasher and they finally let me get on the line and start like letting baskets of fries down in the in the fryer at 16, you're presumably still in school, right? Yeah. So I also uh, dropped out when I was um, about 17. No way. Yeah. So Just on that singular path or was it other? Th- what led to that process? Um, I had a lot going on as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I came out when I was 15 out of the closet as a lesbian. And, um, and so um, I, and I, my family had a lot of uh, just turmoil going on and it was kind of a chaotic home environment for me and so I just set out on my own got my own apartment in St. Paul because after Bigger Square I went to Perkins in the Midway Mm. yeah what was that like in the mid 90s um 
come coming out was that it was it something that was accepted or, or with your friends and family or was it something that that in its own created a personal challenge i had a really good uh group of uh friends a really solid group of friends and also um in uh uh like the loring hill area of um not loring hill loring park area mm-hmm. of uh minneapolis there was a lot of uh coffee shops Ca- cafe zev was I, I worked there for uh, probably about a year, and um, that was a magical place where all of these crazy teenagers could hang out, and um, I hung out at the Midway Perkins for mm-hmm. a buck six for all the coffee you could drink, so we drank coffee all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see, uh, there was District 202, which was a, um, a safe space for gay youth, and they had a coffee shop there too. I have no idea what kind of coffee they carried, but uh, yeah, that was that was a great space as well. And they'd have shows and like rock shows and stuff. That's like that. awesome. Supportive friends and community yeah. is so important. So With important. Just everything. Yeah, and I mean, my mom and my stepdad were had their own set of problems that they were working out, um, but my mom has always been really supportive of me and um you know we've definitely gone through our share of hard times but we've uh come out at the other end just the best of friends and you know life isn't perfect and parents aren't perfect and kids aren't perfect and you know I I definitely um took a very uh uh, subculture approach to life and you know my mom uh I'm sure worried about me mm-hmm. a lot, but I was a pretty smart kid and I kept a job the whole time. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was great. And, um, my dad, not so much. My dad mm. is very right wing, very conservative. And we were estranged for like 15 years. And, uh, the last five years we've, um, like rekindled a, a relationship and, um, and it's great. And I love him in spite of the fact that he chooses crappy people for president. And, you know, I accept him even though he's not like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, and I mean, that's what you got to do. You know, if you want people to love you for you, you got to love other people for who they are. Well, that's what I love about f- just following you on social media. We met at that charity mm-hmm. event and mm-hmm. that was the first time we met. I was mm-hmm. just like, this person's really cool. Like yeah. just like immediately your energy was awesome. So we Thanks. just connected on Instagram and yep. just the extreme positivity mm-hmm. that you exude like every day is mm-hmm. it's awesome because that type of positivity is contagious. Yeah. And even something as simple as a post or hearing a impactful quote, I'm mm-hmm especially susceptible to like a good quote. Yeah. So sometimes that <laughs> it's, it, it, and it's what you're posting and uh, putting out there is, is not just like your generic, like live, laugh, love. Just yeah. love it's, it's really, it's clearly things that are, are impacting you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really like and wanted Thanks. to get you on here. Cause it's yeah. just like this extreme positivity that mm-hmm. it's not an easy thing to do. No. And it's, it is a choice that's like, I'm choosing to be positive no matter what happens. Yep. Yep. You can, it's all about perspective. You know, you can have, uh, the most negative perspective and you would be right. And you can have the most positive perspective and you would also be right. But I think I really understand happiness, um, as, uh, for me, it's serenity. It's not necessarily, I don't want to be happy, happy. Like it comes and goes and it's really, you know, kind of based on, you know, is the weather right today? Okay, great. I'm happy, you know, but serenity is something that lasts for, Ever. 
for as long as you can keep it up. And serenity comes from accepting that things are going to be shitty. And can I swear? Yeah, do, yeah you do you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and accepting it. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, surrendering to it mm. and just saying, you know, okay, I, this is bigger than me and I'm just going to let it go and see, I'm going to show up every day. I'm going to do the best I can. But when it comes down to, you know, if you're trying to make, you know, a relationship work, or if you're trying to make a work relationship work, or if you're trying to, uh, you know, make a new concept of a restaurant work, um, there's certain things that are just totally out of your control and you have to just go, well, <laughs> hope it works out. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. And I think the, that's a really good point about happiness being a very temporary state. Yeah, thank and you. And it's yeah. always going to normalize. And I was thinking about it because when quarantine hits, all of a sudden you realize there's nothing to do. Yeah. And I think a lot of people's happiness is based on what's the next thing I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden when there's nothing to do and you're left alone with your thoughts, if you, I love that serenity mm-hmm. being that, that, just that resting state of what is your, being alone with your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, exposed a lot of people myself included of always thinking about what's the next thing I'm doing what's the Mm -hmm. next thing I'm pursuing and all of a sudden things close down and all these plans go away and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I'm like oh I don't have anything to do all these plans I've put in place are have gone away totally and you're sitting there going what is my resting state yeah (laughs) I had so much momentum going into COVID I was like on fire doing so many great things making so many great connections and then it, it Literally, I I, uh, I go to therapy once a week, and I have this awesome therapist. She's, like, the best. Um, and I was, like, I, I told her I, I felt like I just had so much momentum going, and then I just rammed right into a brick wall. And I'm, like, walking around going, oh, there's my arm. There's my leg. Oh, I just got the chills. There's just, my, uh, my thumb. <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, it, it, for me, I got this um, sense of guilt that, I was so crushed that I, cause I was in a really similar position that this mm-hmm. momentum and it was just stopped. And I love yeah. the thought of the, your, your limbs are everywhere <laughs> and you're trying to pick them up and get back together. <laughs> and I, I felt this uh, sense of guilt about mm-hmm. I'm feeling bad mm-hmm. because my momentum was stopped when there are people who have much bigger problems happening and mm. it creates this sense of guilt. And you're like, I shouldn't feel bad about this, but I do. And mm-hmm. now I feel bad about feeling bad. And it, it took a while to sort through all that when yeah. things were going down. But grief is so layered, you know, it, it, you can be in grief and still experience happiness and still experience serenity and still experience joy and anger and pain and all of that, um, which obviously goes along with grief. Um, but you know, our careers are really important to us. And, um, you know, and for me as a woman in the culinary industry, like it's really hard to get, you know, I, I just felt like I was getting my community, you know, I never wanted to play the bro game Mm -hmm. and I never wanted to be, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a part of a community. I didn't want to draw attention to myself as a chef. And, um, this just, once I like kind of came to, it was like, I started seeing all of the opportunities that were still around Mm -hmm. and all the things that I could still do. And even though I wasn't busy at work, I wasn't doing much, um, you know, as, as my, uh, you know, specific position was, um, at the woman's club, I, you know, was still working with farmers and, um, picked up my, 
YouTube channel and started mm-hmm. working on those and just seeing, you know, what's there to do. Uh, this is a this is a great opportunity for us to pick up uh, old um, hobbies and uh, you know, I always wanted to write a cookbook. I never got that started. I totally squandered the last four months, but you know, all those sorts of things, like it's not over. We just have to like kind of flip over the coin and look at the other side and start making plans. Going back to what you were saying about being a woman in the industry mm-hmm. and going back to being 16 year old, uh, and you were trying to get a dishwashing job at the, was it the Perkins or the Baker square? Baker square. And then I did legitimately get a cooking position at Perkins after that. And yeah. what was that like at 16, 17 years yeah. old, being a woman in the industry where you were saying that it's a that, that like line cook, that like stereotypical, yeah. like, you know, manly macho totally. kind of like gross culture. Yeah. What was yeah. that? like um Perkins well the guys at at Baker Square were were kind of pretty much gross but and that's fine um but uh you know I just really wanted to do it and so nobody was gonna stand in my way nobody was gonna make it too hard for me um and I just I I have this ridiculous optimism that <laughs> can be annoying at times but um at Perkins, uh, that was one of the coolest jobs I've ever had. Hardest work I've ever done, I think, in my entire life. But, um, you know, we had servers and cooks that were, um, you know, uh, St. Thomas students and McAllister students and, you know, rich trust fund kids. We had uh, servers that were, um, their other job was being a stripper um, like at the highway strip clubs, you know, in like Wisconsin and stuff. And then um, we had flamboyant gay men. We had lesbians that were Wiccan witches. We had, uh, um, you know, the kitchen manager was just this like hard ass guy that, you know, walked around with a clipboard and dur, dur, dur. Um, big white guy. And then um, I had two... Uh, two mentors and one was Connie and she was this huge African-American woman that used to be a pimp. <laughs> like legit? <laughs> like legit. <laughs> and then um, JJ and he was an older black man uh, to me at 17. So he was probably like 35, 40 years old. And both of them had been through the system and um, but they had my back and they were like, this little, like, there was no reason why they shouldn't have just messed with me just being this little white 17 year old. But they, um, I don't know. I think they saw that I just wasn't going to take no for an answer. And I was just there to do it better than everybody else. And they were going to teach me how to do it. I mean, JJ would do old school stuff like, you know, you're a good cook when you can flip the burger on the grill with your hands, with your bare hands. And to this day, I do that all the time. Even if I don't have to, I'll do it like once. What's the reasoning behind that? It's just like that was kind of the the thing. Like it was <laughs> like how much pain before. can you take? Oh, okay. You know, there's a similar thing in coffee when you're pulling shots and your hand, or just pour, pouring batch brew and your hands getting splashed with hot coffee. Yeah, you can't react to that. You can't no. show that that you don't feel pain. You don't feel pain. <laughs> and I mean, to a 17 year old, you're like. Jeez, you can't yeah. see my face, but I just like dropped my <laughs> jaw. And uh yeah, you you're just like wowed by everything and um 
And those guys had my back and it was really fun. And I got so good at working like, you know, Perkins has these big, huge flat tops that that's how they make all their omelets. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a a brunch and um, overnight cook because I still had to go to high school when even when I was working there before I dropped out. And um, it was crazy because we would set up it was a five person line. And so the kitchen manager and one other guy was on the two person side and then, or no, he was on the three-person side, so he had two other people, and then it was me and this other guy, and I was like, we need to beat them. So, you you know, the tickets start coming in on both sides, but um, they're different tables, you know? It's not the same tickets over and over. And, uh, yeah, and I we cleared our board, because it's the same amount of tickets. We cleared our board twice before they cleared their board once. <laughs> and the whole staff was just like, you guys got schooled by a girl. <laughs> that was awesome. That was really cool. The people that recognize hard work, like regardless of yep. who you are, or what your background is. And it seems like culture is going away from the resume culture that mm-hmm. what is your resume? It, it seems to be coming less important than it has been. Mm-hmm. And so to have somebody that's just, it doesn't, I don't care how old you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your background mm-hmm. is. If, if you're wor- willing to work hard and then, like being a hard worker and competitive, mm-hmm. I feel like today people are like, oh, we, we don't have to make everything a competition. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, I kind of. Okay, every- that's cool, but I'm going to be better than you. No, that's cool. <laughs> then I'm going to make this, I'm going to be less competitive about this not competitive thing than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, and it makes it fun, you know. Um, yeah, I I just, uh, I loved doing that. That was so much fun. And, um, and that was, that's kind of a theme too, is that, yeah, there's a lot of misogyny in, in kitchens, but also if you work hard, you can, it doesn't matter what you look like or who you are. Um, you know, I've worked with plenty of really nice people and plenty of a-holes and I'm like, if you're going to be an asshole, at least back it up, yeah. like have the skills to back it up. Like, cause then it's, it's totally cool. But if you're just like, you know, talking and, and acting yeah. like you're the coolest person in the world and you don't have anything to back it up. You can't be a bad person and be bad at your job. Oh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. How long were you at Perkins for? Mm, I think like two years. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, when I was, uh, maybe it was just a year. Anyhow, um, I, let's see. Yeah, I went, I think, to Cafe Zev and I was working in the coffee shop there. And I also got a part-time job doing security at First Avenue. And so I made the jump to the Minneapolis side of the river. And um, and then I got my first quote-unquote gourmet cooking job uh, working on the line at Bryant Lake Bowl. Nice. And this was 1996, 7, 8, somewhere in there. 90, 96. What was Uptown like back then? Um, It was... Uh, not as pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely like no new buildings or anything like that. All, none of the high rises that are, seem to be going up every other that. day now. Yeah, none of that. I mean, Kellen Square was barely like was brand new, spanking new. Right. That was about it. Um, the Rainbow Room was still around. That's where the old uh, are where Chino Latino is now. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was like a dive bar, and um, McDonald's used to have this huge uh patio where like all of the traveling punks would hang out and like it would just be full of like punk rock kids like 
whether they were, you know, homeless and traveling or just going to shows around the area, like everybody would hang out there and it would smell really bad. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what was the food program like at Brian Bowl? What, what were you doing there? Um, it was a lot. It was very similar to what they do today. Okay. Not a ton has changed. Um, sandwiches, uh, you know, I was using fresh asparagus and fresh herbs and uh, it was my job to do the bread order every week or every couple of days or whatever. And um, yeah, that's when I started like getting to know uh, what real vegetables looked like. Um, I did a lot. I did know quite a bit from growing up, but we ate uh, mostly at my mom's house. We ate mostly um, like salads and canned vegetables. Mm -hmm. And that was just a thing. Um, and at my stepmom's, uh, you know, we ate, or my dad and my stepmom's, we ate, uh, a lot of Italian. So it was a lot of, like, I knew, uh, what, uh, how to eat an artichoke, a whole artichoke before I probably knew what fresh asparagus looked like. <laughs> so weird. As you're hopping around, do you have aspirations that you're like, I want to be a head chef. I want to be an executive chef. This, this is where I'm going. Or is it just... I like this job now, and then you find a new job, and then it kind of starts building up. Yeah. No, I, I was climbing the mountain. I really wanted to move up, um, and I wanted to keep learning. And, uh, yeah, and I had dropped out of high school and um, didn't really have any aspirations to go to college. I just wanted to cook, and I loved it. And um, I had friends that were cooks, and so I would be – asking them questions all the time and and just learning as much as I could and I loved I loved the camaraderie I loved the community like um I just felt very at home and you know my my boss at the Bryant Lake Bull was gay and um you know the owner of the Bryant Lake Bull was gay so it was like I you know and I'd hang out with Cafe Weird a lot and that was also owned by Kim Bartman and so it was just this uh, service, uh, you know, service worker community that was kind of happening and, and it felt really good. Um, but the more I could learn it, whatever I was doing, the more I wanted to do it mm -hmm. and just keep learning and asking questions. And I had a guy that I worked with at, um, I think that was Perkins. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I really want to move up. Like, where should I go next? And he was just like, oh, it gets so busy at these other restaurants and stuff. And, you know, and it's really nice food. I don't know if you can do it. And not having grown up with fine dining, I was terrified. So I kind of, you know, uh, took my time to get into fine dining. Once I got into it, then I like dove head first. But I think I was really intimidated by it. For how'd, you, how'd you get into it? What was your first stop there? Ooh, that's such a good story. Um, <laughs> so, uh, one of my really good friends still to this day is a woman named Jen Bublitz and, um, she was a chef at, um, or garmache chef gar and saute chef at Table of Contents downtown Minneapolis. And this is, uh, 1998, 97, 98. And, um, I went there once on a Valentine's day dinner because I'm bougie. No, I'm not bougie. <laughs> but um, since Jen was working there, I felt like it was a safe uh, environment to go to, you know, and I wouldn't be treated weird as a kid, you know, especially with 
messed up hair and all of that. But I really loved food and I really wanted to learn and see all the cool stuff. So I went there for dinner and it was wonderful. And I'm like, I'm going to work here. This is where I'm going to work. And two years later, Jen called me up and she's like, hey, our garbage chef uh, quit. Do you want to, you can come in and apply now. And it took two years for her to like trust me enough to like offer me to come try to work there. And so, yeah, I went there and I started at $8.50 in the Garmage. And I ended up staying there for about five years. And I worked my way up from Garmage, 19-year-old, little, little, just a little guy. Um, 19 at this time. Uh huh. And for those two years it took, did you put it out there that, hey, I want, I want to work here? Yeah, right after I, I ate there, I was like, there's nothing else in this whole world. I want to work there that was... Like, I'd never seen anything like that before. I think that's so important yeah. to, to put things out there that I, don't, I think enough people are, well, I don't want to embarrass myself or I don't want to be pushy. Or I was be- terrified. I'm still terrified when I think about it. Like, what were you thinking, kid? Like, you're going into, like, this is right before, you know, celebrity chef, like, anything happened. Yeah. And these restaurants were, you know, kind of secret society kind of thing. I mean, anybody could go to them, but as far as getting a job there, like it was a a thing. You had to know somebody mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, yeah, it was like, whoa. What was the transition like? Um, I was just totally a fish out of water and um, but just showing up like if I didn't know what to do with myself, I just would clean mm-hmm. and I never stopped moving and I just never stopped asking questions and but also keeping my mouth shut when I needed to. And um, I remember um, the sous chef took me into the walk-in cooler and he was like, taste everything. I want you to taste everything. Uh, Don't be shy about it. Like ask questions if you don't know what it is. Like we're here to teach you. And um, Table of Contents was this amazing restaurant. Um, The chef was uh, Philip Dorwart. He now owns Create Caters, um, catering in uh, out of Northeast Minneapolis. And um, he was like 26 at the time. So I had a super young executive chef and he was like, Joe cool, super cool. (laughs) And um, so like he, he, you know, kind of set the precedence. Everybody was really cool. And we changed the menu every two weeks. Every two weeks. Every two weeks, we got a brand new menu, and all the cooks uh, got together, and um, from the person who started yesterday to the person to the executive chef, and we re- rewrote the menu. And so, you know, one person would be like, "What do you think about going Mediterranean?" Okay, great. I've been thinking about this, and then the, and it was always brainstorming, always beautiful food and simple re- simple menu, but. What was that? How was that received by customers? Was that a typical practice of the time of changing a menu like that? No, but it, it lo- people loved it. And, um, you know, I mean, we'd have a chicken entree, a pork entree, a steak, you know, on every menu, mm-hmm. but we'd change the preparation and people loved it. And was that based on like what was in season or mm-hmm. was it just to keep things fresh? It was based on what was in season. I got exposed to foragers, um, we would bring in whole fish and break them down. And to this day, butchering is by far one of my favorite things in the whole world to do. I love it. Um, and I mean, <laughs> uh, my executive chef, uh, George Schneider, we had a couple executive chefs, but 
um, at, at the same time. But uh, he's he's a smaller stature guy, mm-hmm. and we'd get in halibuts where he'd hold it up by the tail, and it would be, like, the same size as he is. So he'd, like, heave it onto the table and, you know, set out, like, three cutting boards and then go to town and start cutting this fish down. It was pretty funny. <laughs> and that type of dining, was that – because I, I feel like that style of only using in-season ingredients and switching the menu, that's only become like in vogue in the last five years, maybe. Yeah. And so to talk about that being done at the time, this, I mean, my perception would be that's pretty forward thinking w- mm-hmm. within food. Yep, absolutely. Well, and it was, um, we we didn't have the like huge purveyors that there are now. Like most of the purveyors were only, uh, you know, focusing on the industrial kitchens that were like more corporate kitchens and ca- corporate like uh, cafes and fast food and that kind of thing. So if you wanted to do a fine dining restaurant, you used like there wasn't even a Bix. It it was Roots and Fruits and that was a um, co-op. So everybody that worked at Roots and Fruits was also invested in the company. And, and when they when Bix bought them, it was crazy. Like they all got a pretty penny. It was crazy. But like, yeah, so we, you know, only ordered from a few different places and you, you know, sourced what you need. You really did. And it's hard in Minnesota to do that. especially (laughs) Like there wasn't the hobby farms that there are now, you know, just a little bit, but. And what was your personal progression like during the five years you were there? So I went from Garmage to um, sous chef. And that was awesome. And I worked with a lot of CIA grads and I asked my boss, Philip, um, do you think I should go to the CIA? Like, I'm ready. Like, this is Culinary it. Culinary Institute. Like, this is what I want to do. Not yeah. the government organ. No, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Culinary Institute That's when I became America. a secret agent. <laughs> Shh. Oops. Cats out of the bag. Um, yeah. Uh, CIA. CIA. And... Uh, I was like, I really want to do this. Like, this is this is what I want to do, and I want to be as good as everybody else that I see here, and I don't feel like I'm there. And uh, he was like, why don't you just stay here, and I'll pay you to for you to rip all of the information and knowledge you can out of my brain. And I was like, good point. Because <laughs> at that time, um, like, the CIA, you had to have, like, three – it was three to five years of experience in kitchens before they would even accept your application. <laughs> and then it was, like, an easy 50 grand a year to go. Jeez. And um, – or maybe it was 50 grand for the whole program. Either way, a Either lot way. of money. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, he uh, made a good argument, and, um, and that's what I did. And we changed the menu every two weeks, and I was working with CIA grads. Like, I was learning – everything I could possibly think of and he's like read all the cookbooks and then come in and ask me all the questions and get your own education and I'm like okay cool and so that's what I did and I I moved up to sous chef and um, we changed the concept to dish which was more of an LA style restaurant Um, and that was sad because table of contents was really really special and um, it had a lot of heart in it and a lot of uh, you know, like meeting every two weeks with your team to rewrite the whole menu mm-hmm. was a beautiful thing. And we were really good at it and taking risks. And, you know, sometimes the dish wouldn't come together for like a week because we were trying different things. And 
that was what the dish was that night and it would be better the next day. Mm-hmm. So I learned everything. I learned so much. It was crazy. And then um, dish started tanking um, mm. right around uh, 9-11 happened and all the downtown Minneapolis restaurants just started bottoming out. And so I was like, well, I need to find a new job. And um, so, uh, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Bourdain. (laughs) (laughs) Heard of him. Yeah. He went to the sample room, and I thought that was Uh so cool. And one of our sous chefs um, left and went to go work at the sample room. So I was like, well, that seems to be, like, the next thing that I'm going to do. And it was in Northeast. And um, before that, I had already been living in Northeast, and... I would go and play uh, pinball at the Polish Palace, which was what the, the sample room used to be. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, this is great. I'm going to love this. This is awesome. So I went in there and I got the, after the sous chef who preceded me, um, that left table contents and went to uh, the sample room. After he left, I got his job. And that was my uh, second sous chef job. And I stayed there for a couple of years. That was great. I, cause I went from like essentially fast food, like Perkins and stuff like that with like a little buffer of Bryant Lake bowl straight into like fine dining. <laughs> like my boss, my chef from, uh, uh, Bryant Lake bowl. When I told her that I got the job, she was like, you're going from like kindergarten to Harvard. And I was <laughs> like, I know, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is awesome. Um, and so I kind of missed a lot of steps along the way. Um, you know, there's a way to make different sauces and there's a, like, there's a, a tradition of cooking that I just kind of missed. And so sample room definitely filled in those gaps mm. for me in making, um, a lot. It, you know, I learned, I got really good at making food pretty, but not really understanding the, the technique behind it. And, um, so sample room taught me that and it started my, my, deep love affair with uh charcuterie and um so table contents gave me the butchering and then I started learning how to stuff my own sausage and um there's lots of jokes there about lesbians being really good at stuffing sausage (laughs) (laughs) I was the best at it and and the irony was not lost on anyone that I worked with at sample room it was it was a freak of nature but um they were really good. I was really good at yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know. I know my way around a piece of meat. What can I say? <laughs> uh, but I I love it. And um, I learned uh, so much on curing and we cured our own bacon. And this again was awesome. like I, charcuterie way is. before like the huge boom happened. Like this was just what the, the sample room was doing. It seems like you keep finding yourself in places where you're ahead of trends. I know. It's awesome. It's so weird. But I mean, I'm a nerd. I really like things that I think are not necessarily trendy, but hold a lot of integrity. And then eventually they get picked up. Right. And um, and when you love food, you start to think, like, where did this come from? Yeah. Why do we eat this way? And so actually further down the line, I I finally figured out if I went to the college, what I would go to college for. And that was food history because I love those questions so much. And then I realized that I wouldn't make any more money than I do now if I went to college for food history. So again, I just keep reading books yeah, and watching YouTube videos and 
all that sort of stuff. It's, like, it's all available out there. It's so uh-huh. easy to wormhole on things. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a, I'm the same way. When I taste something new, I mean, it's literally why I started fall is when I mm-hmm. taste something new, it's like, what is going on with this? Fermentation for me is the, the flavors that come from fermentation yeah. have always been the ones that like, there's an extra something that you don't find in anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And charcuterie, there, there are, there's a lot of fermentation happening with mm-hmm. that. And it, the tough thing about Western diet and just the processed foods that are available at most grocery stores is people will taste something and be like, okay, I've tasted charcuterie. I've, mm-hmm. I've had this before. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, like the casings, they literally add the fake mold onto it to make it look like you're getting authentic things. And then all of a sudden yeah. you taste real charcuterie mm-hmm. and salami and you're like, what is going on yeah. with this? Yeah. Well, I mean, the same with coffee. Like, if it's fresh, it's so good. Like, yeah. if it's done with, um, you know, without mucking around with it too much, it's so good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I that that's what kind of has gotten lost is that we over, uh, we just overdo it with our food. We overcook it. We over homogenize it we over farm it we you know and so it's like uh when I do charcuterie now I work with Iron Shoe Farms out of Princeton Minnesota and it's a woman run woman owned farm and um she raises heritage hogs that are uh red wattle and that other name that I can't remember or pronounce very well but they're really hairy and they have like curly hair they're really cute (laughs) um and uh so it's this like hybrid of these heritage hogs and the meat is like so delicious you don't have to do anything to it just don't mess it up just do what you need to do to cook it and then don't mess it up so I actually get the parts of the pigs from her that she can't sell to just anybody because I'm like I'm gonna make well I call it pork terrine because people won't eat it if it's called head cheese because that just people figured out what that is and it sounds gross yeah like it more so than um what it actually is like it reminds me of like like athlete's foot or something (laughs) (laughs) i got really lucky when i started getting really into coffee i was living in st louis doing sales for sam adams so i was a massive beer nerd when i was Mm -hmm. at sam adams Mm -hmm. and that's what led to a co-worker turning me on to coffee but I was really lucky in St. Louis there's this amazing butcher there mm. and so I started learning all about charcuterie and mm-hmm. they you know they're the type where they didn't care if I would stick around for 45 minutes and ask what is that why does it look cool. like that what's going on Love with that? that and so he's like well this is what a lot of people call head cheese and I was like that's gross I'll gross. take how much how much <laughs> do you think I should have <laughs> and I had it. I was like it's just like the, the the flavors you can get out of things that are not I don't, just things that are weird I'm mm-hmm. more apt to try them mm-hmm. than if Me it's too. like I just want what's ever closest similar to the summer sausage I get at mm-hmm. the grocery store which is you know tasty in its own right but totally the the, the, the depth of flavor the richness you get from something mm-hmm. like a, a pork terrine mm-hmm. uh, which is a better way to market it I think right and like revisiting aspects I mean every time I bring up an aspect people are like what's that and I'm like Okay, so before we had Jello, we had aspic, and like the people back in the olden days didn't eat Jello that was fruit flavored. They ate Jello that was meat flavored. It was delicious, and they put it on top of everything, and they spread it on toast, and it was beautiful. But it tasted like meat, 
And that's really hard for people to get over. <laughs> but when they taste it, they're like, wow, this is so good. I mean, it's like a cup of soup, but it's, you know, solid and it just melts in your mouth. It's wonderful. Is that part of what attracted you to the Lynn Hall? Because I, I love the Lynn Hall food program. I, I think that just the attention to, I always say a place like that, that where you get a sandwich, you're like, everything about this sandwich is magnificent. Mm-hmm. You're like, the bread is amazing. The yeah. meat is amazing. Yeah. Everything is so fresh. It's it's all just very real yeah. that you can take simple dishes and be like, everything about this is like so on point. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, they definitely don't need my help. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, Annie. Um. <laughs> on the record, they need me the more record, than You need ever. me every day. No, it's a lot of fun. Um, But- uh, th- my road to getting the job there was really, um, what's serendipitous. It was like, it was one of those things that's out of my control. I just showed up. I, I, uh, followed the breadcrumbs, so to speak. So I saw them post on social media that they were looking for a new chef and I went, Hmm, that would be really cool. That's such a beautiful place. But I really liked my job at the woman's club. And so I was kind of on the fence about it. Um, I really didn't like I thought I was gonna retire there like the women's club was is so amazing and it's a wonderful place and um, I love it so much uh, but then a friend of mine called me up and she's like hey you know Lynn Hall's looking for a new chef and I'm like yeah but I love my job and she's like yeah but you could just go talk to them and see what's up and I'm like okay sure and I had met uh, Chef Nettie Cologne at a couple different events and also was totally Instagram stalking her because she was like um, my hero that I never met. Like I just have so much respect for her and I think she's just such an incredible person and a total badass and she can cook like nobody's business and I just kind of like want to, you know, extract anything from her brain that I possibly can. Um, like just sitting in the same room with her, I'm like, this is so great. And she knows how big of a nerd I am now about it. But, you know, I, cause I just had lay it out there. I'm like, I'm not trying to be creepy, but like, I'm a huge fan of yours and now we're <laughs> friends. And so now I just, am still a huge fan of yours. That doesn't go away, but it's really cool that we're friends. And, um, so I went in and talked to her and, uh, we were, um, working on a couple other, uh, projects, um, as well and so I it just was a really easy conversation and then she introduced me to the owner and um, the owner was like we're really looking for someone to you know uh, solidify all of our costing and really get us set up well and I'm like I'm really good at that you know not a lot of chefs are really good at the money side of things mm-hmm. and the accounting and the math side I love that just as much as the actual cooking and designing food. The costing side has to be really hard, especially with such rotating seasonal ingredients that customers just expect this sandwich to be the same price every time I get it or these dishes to be the same price every time. Yeah. Do those prices fluctuate a lot based on which ingredients you're getting seasonally? Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, avocados can be like, you know, $30 a case one day and then skyrocket depends on how much the Mexicans hate Trump that week actually <laughs> uh like right after the election um limes went up 
an ungodly amount and uh, avocados like up to $115. I, rem- I remember that. that yeah. They're saying like you won't get a, you, nobody will be getting limes with their Coronas for nope. th- this summer. Yep. Yep. So um, definitely got to watch it. How do you approach that? Do you approach it where you say we need to find ingredients that are at this price so we can keep the consistency of our prices of our different uh, dishes? Or is it more so that we're going to reflect that price to the customer with them understanding what we're doing? Um, it depends on how long the fluctuation fluctuation is going to happen. Um, and I source other options right away. Mm. So, um, like if, if I, if it's limes, then I go, you know, can we just bring in lime juice? Um, sometimes that works. Uh, or can we bring in, can we do something with oranges instead? Mm -hmm. You know, just try to solve my way around it for the, you know, we're tomatoes do that a lot. So it's like, some days on our burger, you'll have like a big, huge beef steak tomato. Mm-hmm. And then if the crop fails or something's messed up, then we'll go to Roma tomatoes and you'll get three little Roma slices. And um, or if I get start getting tomatoes in and they're green and I want them to be beautiful and delicious, then I'll have to switch in midstream. And so that's just kind of the way it is. But um, then you have to go in and update all of your costing sheets and make sure that you know, it's, it's making sense across the board and that you're not, you know, throwing money away. Yeah. All the non-public facing stuff about being a chef or yeah. it's like they're really good chefs. They're also need to be really good at that to stay I, in business. I love making money just as much as I love making good food. And then, and then I love uh, curating a really great staff on top of it. You know, it all ki- comes together, but um, I love business, you know, and, and being able to be creative uh, albeit I'm not creative every day, um, is still such a, it's so fun. Well, being, being good at business or enjoying it is what builds the foundation of yep. being able to do cool shit. Like yep. that's, that's how I look at it yep. is like, I get so pumped about the business side when you find something that you're like, this could work or mm-hmm. it is working or this new thing is working mm-hmm. because I mean, we're sitting in a studio that was literally built by like, okay, we've been able to do enough where I can justify doing this totally. without totally feeling guilty about it. Yep. And I think too often people almost feel bad about that, that it's mm-hmm. like, well, I don't want to be too businessy or too salesy or like too this or that. I'm like, well, if you're not the one doing it, then who is? Yep. Yep. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly the case in so many restaurants. Yeah. I mean, nobody is checking and looking at things and making sure that, uh, you know, you're making money. You know, a lot of people just do costing from like their guts Yeah, <laughs> and math doesn't lie. And, yeah. you know, and luckily I had a really good um, mentor as far as uh, the business side of things go, where he really taught me how to um, take the emotion out of it, you know, and just go, this is just what it is. And so what are we going to do about it? You know, it's nobody's fault. Yeah. Like, let's just figure out how to fix it. And that was great because I had so many jobs, especially as an executive chef, where the owner would come to me with the profit and loss statement and go, why is your labor so high? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm just scheduling people as I need them, you know, like that's all I'm doing. And so I really kind of would get and then they would be mad at me, Mm. you know, instead of, uh, you know, setting a, a. forecast for me or you know any of those questions I didn't know how to ask them because Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was and um and it wasn't until I I did some uh corporate dining 
for a while that I learned all of that bookkeeping stuff. And you, you'll learn that quick there. Made me a huge <laughs> nerd. Yeah, but it's it's great stuff, you know, and um, and I, I just it, it makes you able to work with farmers and. You know, so many chefs will just go to a farm farmer and ask, you know, how much per pound is this thing? And, uh, you know, is your pork? And they'll, they'll, it'll be three times more expensive than what you could get at U.S. Foods mm-hmm. um, or Cisco. And you have to figure out how to make that work. And I've always said this about who your customer ends up being that mm-hmm. if when you're going out and sourcing ingredients, if your number one concern is I need to be a below a certain price and that's dictating what you buy, mm-hmm. then the thing you're offering is going to be no different than what you could get anywhere else down the street. Yep. When quality and taste and flavor is your number one focus, mm-hmm. then what you're serving is going to be worth the price and you're going to attract customers where price is not their number one concern mm-hmm. because you're never going to beat a $1 McDonald's burger. Yeah. And for a dollar, it's a pretty damn good burger for a dollar. So you have to be so much better yep. that someone's willing to spend the extra money. And I think that's that gets lost too often mm-hmm. that they go, I need to be at this price. You have to get me something at this price. Totally. And you go, but this thing that's a little bit more is way better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really apparent in the times that I've dined at Lynn Hall. Yeah. What's your favorite thing on the menu right now? Oh, Goodness. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking while you were talking that, like, I'm a burger connoisseur. Um, Ooh. I, sidebar. Favorite yeah. burgers in the Twin Cities. All right. Let's so our So the Lynn Hall has skyrocketed to the top for sure. Really? It is so good. The ND Pickle Burger it has everything. I will note that you have a high sense of bias, so I'm going to I'm going to take that into consideration. But it's I'm cool. going to get one this week, it and can I will definitely scooch into your top five. What, what style of burger is it? So it's it's uh, local beef from Peterson Farms, um, and uh, it's just grilled. But we put on um, white American cheese mixed with pepper jack cheese, so it has like perfect melt to it, and then um, homemade pickles. A homemade milk bun that's made by our award-winning pastry chef. Uh, what else is on there? So, um, cat or uh, coleslaw, and that's it. I feel like there's one other thing on there that I'm forgetting. Um, Condiments? No, it's oh like, coleslaw. So I suppose yeah, really make up the that's it. All and right. like typically, I'm a mustard freak. I love mustard yeah, on every burger, every hot dog. And I wouldn't even put mustard on this. It's so good. It's that good. It's just so good. Okay. I couldn't believe it. I'm going to get one tomorrow. When I had my first one, I was like, this is stupid. I just, wow. It blew my mind. Um, Okay. So then uh, I I will never let go. The number one spot is always Matt's. Forever and ever with grilled onions. Juicy Lucy. Uh... I just, I love that place. It's so good. For anyone not in Minnesota listening, Juicy Lucy is the Minnesota tradition of cheese inside the patty. Mm-hmm. And Matt's mm-hmm. Bar is like the OG. Yeah. Matt, at where you go in and their their menu offerings are burger or cheeseburger. Yep. <laughs> yep. And everything is like store-bought quality. Like, I would even go as far as to say like like a um, corner store, like uh quality mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not even yeah. like a big box store it's like you just go to the corner store 
like your dad's making it. But the thing that makes it is that they have this tiny little flat top and they cook every single burger on there and it just is seasoned and delicious and so good. Oh, I love that. Um, let's see, what else? I um oh, I really love uh shoot. What it's on the corner of University and Second uh JJ is it JJ something? Oh, can't think of it. Northeast. It's a great burger. <laughs> <laughs> there is a burger in Northeast. There's a burger on University and what is the cross street there? It's been a long day. <laughs> but that's a great burger. It's JJ something. JJ Taylor? JJ something along those lines. Figure this out. Yeah, there you go. Get the Google machine going. Okay. So I've got, I need two more burgers. Um, let's see. Oh, goodness. Um, you know, my, like, uh, good old standby, if I have to, uh, need, need like, fast food-wise, mm-hmm. is the Culver's double. Culver's goes under the radar. Oh, I love They're Culver's. super underrated. I love it so much. <laughs> I crush it. I can't get... I'll get grilled onions on there sometimes. And then uh chocolate milkshake. <laughs> so good. So good. And God, I would just say uh number five. Just um We're gonna figure out this JJ's later on. I'll put it in the show notes. Is it JD's? I don't know. It's no, because JD Hoyt's is that steak place. Right. Yeah. I actually have no idea what you're talking about. <sighs> It's it's like never busy in there. I don't know why. They do fresh fries and everything. I don't know. They have a classic burger or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um it's basically just two patties with a melted cheese and grilled onions. Mm-hmm. And it's just great. And I just put tons of mustard on mm-hmm. it. It's it's really good. I love that burger. And then uh I think number 5 is like any burger. just any burger anywhere (laughs) any burger um if i can if they have a burger and it seems like a place that like knows how to make a burger Mm -hmm. i'm i'm there for it um in taylor's falls they have like the border bar and they have um a choice of like elk or bison or beef or i don't even know what else venison um that's a really good huh. uh, burger. It's just super simple, but you can choose your patty, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's another one. I'll probably think of it in like at 11 o'clock tonight. I'll be like, yeah. oh, my God, <laughs> why did I say that one? Uh, but uh, So is that your favorite thing on the Lynn Hall menu right now? Oh, it's so good. Everything's so good, like you were yeah. saying. and. You know, I'm I'm not that biased because it's not my menu. Yeah. You know. Oh, that makes it. That is true. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the because you just started what a month ago. Yeah. Well, and the vision of Lynn Hall is not to it's it's to lift everyone up around us, hmm. and it's a, all about community focus. So it's about the vision of our owner, and um and our all of our parts, and I say ours like the whole team's parts in in uh, making that vision happen. And um, and it's about uh, community and lifting up people that, you know, uh, and that's what drew me to Lynn Hall, too, that kind of sealed the deal. Besides meeting Annie and um, and just loving Nettie and, and 
uh, respecting her so much was that Lynn Hall um, does or used to before COVID, they'd have once a month, they'd have Sunday, uh, Sunday sober suppers. Mm -hmm. And um, in, at the end of September, I'll be uh, celebrating two years sober from alcohol and, and drugs, but I never really did drugs. Mm. But, um, and, and that wasn't like a crash and burn story or anything like that. It was like, I just, um, felt responsible as a leader in my community, as the gay community and as, um, in the restaurant community. Um, I was just seeing a lot of people around me suffering from their addictions and I didn't want to be successful and still drink and, um, and give them a reason to continue down that path. And like, look at Steph, she can do it. It's fine. Um, I just didn't want to be that person. And um, I, uh, in January, I'll be 42. So it was right before my 40th birthday. And I was just tired. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I did it. I did the damn thing. Like drinking, I was really, really good at. But I just got tired. And yeah. I was like, I, I want to focus on my energy on other things. Like this is boring now. So I did it for 20 years and now I'm doing something else for 20 years. It's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really cool that there was this uh, intentional space for sober people to go in and into a fine dining establishment and get treated like any other uh, guest or person, you know, um, they did like these really cool um, mocktails and stuff mm-hmm. with every course and you know, people cried and it was like this huge, you know, emotional thing for people. Um, cause there is a stigma that goes along with well, the, the fo- sober. Yeah. The follow-up question is always why, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's starting to become more normal to not have to ask why and mm-hmm. for it to just be like, that's a, a personal choice. Mm-hmm. There's no, what other things where you say, this is how I do things and you go, why tell me your story. Mm-hmm. And that's one where, you know, there, there is that stigma, the judgment of, oh, you must have crashed and burned. Yeah. There, there must be a horror totally. story and you tell me now. And yeah. it's like, well, first of all, that's my personal business. Get out of it. And mm-hmm. then secondly, like it doesn't have to be that. And I think there does, uh, Lynn Hall does play a big part of, of it within the twin cities mm-hmm. that, just having things like that show people that, Hey, you can be in this industry and not have to be going back to your nineties gross, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, like that kind of stigma behind being in the food and beverage industry. It seems to be growing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like I, I don't feel, uh, not accepted at all. I mean, sometimes, you know, it is that awkward conversation, but usually it's, um, you know, cool. That's great. Good for you. And they're, you know, or they'll say something along the lines of like, Oh, well I'm, but I'm going to keep drinking. And I'm like, great. You're drinking for two. <laughs> like I, I love that people drink. I'm, you know, I'm super grateful for the time I drank and I have no negative connotations around it whatsoever. If it's not serving you just like anything else, like a relationship or, uh, eating like ice cream every night, like I did through most of COVID. <laughs> You have to get to a point where you're like, that's not serving me anymore. Uh, yeah. I was on a one milkshake a day diet. Like I was literally eating. As like, the doctors recommend. Yeah. It, it was beautiful. It got me through COVID. Yeah. <laughs> it kept my spirits up. But at some point you got to go, eh, I got to reel that yeah. in. And, you know, I after I quit drinking, I told myself um, that I could eat whatever I wanted for as long as I needed to. And then when I was going to be ready to put down the sugar and like kind of 
reeled it back in that I would do it. And so now I'm on that kick and, um, which is great. Like I love being healthy and I've always, um, it's just, uh, it's really natural for me, but the ice cream helped a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was like, I found a $10 milkshake that I was buying kind of regularly because it was delicious. It was good enough for $10. (laughs) Then going back to my other point that price is not the number one concern when you're trying to find the best of anything. It's not. It's so good. Um. (laughs) No, it's it's funny because that's also one of the things where somebody will be like, well, I thought thought you were going to have a drink with me. And then you kind of have to go, well, what is, why do you need that? Mm -hmm. And going back to kind of the what we were originally talking about of people being alone with their own thoughts of having to be Mm -hmm. like, wait, wait a second. Why am I uncomfortable if I'm the only one doing it? And what is that discomfort? And why should I be uncomfortable about someone else if they're okay with me doing it? It's Mm -hmm. just like, there's a lot of things like that where it's just, you go, well, this is how it is. Yeah. But why? Yeah. And well, I think we had enough time to sit and think about those things on so many different levels, you know, like civil unrest wouldn't have happened. Uh, if, um, if people didn't have their sports ball and their rock shows Mm -hmm. and all of that to distract them, they had time to sit and think and they saw their neighbor get killed and decided to do something about it, you know? And you just realize that so many of the things that are put into place are just social constructs. These things that you just go, this is how it's always been. We're living in the matrix. It's I've I've (laughs) said it for years. And I had this weird realization when, when I was doing sales for Sam Adams, all I had to do is wear a pair of khakis and a polo and I could walk in the back of any store. And that was a very small thing that kind of opened this weird part of my brain where I go, wait a second, that employees only sign that I've seen since I was a kid and thought that I would like, you can't go back there. It was a small thing. And I'm like, oh, everything's made up. <laughs> everything, everything in the world, somebody made up. And yep. it's like, and it started because I could walk back in anywhere. And obviously that opens up this other part wait why can i do that why are there other Mm -hmm. people that couldn't do that Mm -hmm. and that opens up the other side Mm -hmm. of of that can of worms but it it is wild and i think this whole thing that you just go well everything's stable Mm -hmm. this is how the world is Mm -hmm. and then something like COVID happens and you realize everything's so fragile so fragile so fragile and you start to have time to think about that and Mm -hmm. I think it made a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that I kind of had been thinking about in the back of my mind for years about how everything's kind of made up. Yeah. Like there's always the the meme that went around where it's like, hey, you know, when you're driving down a road, the only thing between you and death is these lines that someone put down and yeah. we all have this collective agreement to listen to them. Yeah. It's kind of how a lot of things are. Or Absolutely. You go, this is how things are. So we have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And I think this ironically COVID happening made people question other things. Mm-hmm. Should it be this way? Does it have to be Is there another way, way to do it? Exactly. Let's have a different perspective. Let's have a conversation about it. Like nobody was talking about it, you know? Um, and we should have been talking about mm. it way before uh, any of that happened. And, um, and it's exciting. I mean, it's exciting to see people getting involved in their communities and caring and, um, you know, lifting our our communities to to get closer together because we we all took everything for granted so much i mean i think uh you know there was a stronger sense of community in the 70s and 80s like i grew up on a highway outside of chicago illinois um on north avenue and uh 
I was allowed to, I was kicked out of my house to get on my bicycle and go run in the neighborhood. And um, if I wanted to cross the street, I had to wait for a stranger to walk up my street and ask them to cross me uh, across the highway. So I could go to the Jewel Osco and go get baseball cards and bubble gum and I things. I used to sell to Jewel Osco. I started in North <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of the opposite of the extreme positivity of following you on social media is the flip side of it is that it's incredibly easy to absorb negative nuggets of whatever you want to see. Mm-hmm. And then the troubling nature of the echo, echo chamber that you follow people that probably have similar thoughts to what you have. And yeah. then anybody who doesn't follow those same thoughts, it, the other side is having been, I, I started in North Chicago, then I was Southern Illinois, which is much more rural and kind of, you know, there, I lived in Champaign, which was a small, mm-hmm. you know, a small city or town, whatever you want to call it. Then moving to St. Louis and seeing what St. Louis was like with mm-hmm. the extreme wealth gaps between yeah. the mega rich blocks away from uh, blocks that are just literally crumbling mm-hmm. and realizing and just seeing these different perspectives. I actually tried to get a job back in Minneapolis. And I'm kind of grateful I didn't Mm -hmm. and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of all this yeah um I think the scary thing for me is how things that aren't political have become political oh yeah yeah I mean everything is just kind of exploding and 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 that's okay I'm comfortable in the chaos to an extent because well I practice serenity so there's not a lot that I can do about it but when I can be of service and I can do something about it um even in small ways I'm gonna do it you know but I mean, that's just also kind of the person that I've always been. Mm-hmm. I'm super focused on community. If I if I don't know someone and they need help, I'm going to do whatever I can do mm-hmm. to help them. And I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to, you know, I, I believe in the best in people. We're all doing our best. Some people are crappier at it than others, <laughs> but we all got to be as good as we are by making mistakes and learning and there's somebody there that kept on believing in us and and you know usually it's like our moms and that's great but um yeah it's see and need fill and need that's my favorite movie by the way is <laughs> uh robots it's a little known uh i think it's pixar uh animated movie and um ewan mcgregor is the main robot and then he has a sidekick that's robin williams and the one of the main uh uh parts of the movie is um the the slogan see a need fill a need and i'm like that is the coolest thing ever like you don't have to you know be this huge you know social change warrior you don't have to um even vote but you should vote everybody should go vote um <laughs> especially in november mm-hmm. um but uh you just see a need, fill a need, like help your neighbors. You know, if you, you know, I just, if you shovel their driveway for them or the, the sidewalk for them every once in a while, or just, you know, even if they don't need the help, you just see that something needs to be get done and you do it. Right. That changes the world. It's, I think everybody thinks they need this like big home run move or statement mm-hmm. or movement, uh, but in reality, it's the things within local community and your 
the people around you are mm-hmm. you and I, I try to be very cognizant of like am I making the people I work with or do have interactions with am I making their life better or worse mm-hmm. and the whole goal is like if everybody's thinking that way that hey mm-hmm. am I making this life's is, am I making this person's life better or worse mm-hmm. you know there's certain days where things happen where I'm like I feel bad that person had to interact with me this day, but it's totally every once in a while you, you we have all to suck every once in a while. But overall, <laughs> it's kind of like I, 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 what you did in getting that job that you're like, I'm putting it out there. Mm-hmm. I, I put it out there to everybody I work with that my end goal is to make everybody's business life better. And mm-hmm. if I'm not doing that, call me out on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I think that's a really important thought that mm-hmm. it's like it's one thing to yell into the void of things that you can't affect but I, I love that see a need fill a need yeah I, I haven't heard that before it's so cool <laughs> and it's a really cute movie it's it's not you know all kitty fluff it's it's really cute um but yeah and then you know to get back to when uh I was applying for the job at Lynn Hall mm-hmm. um they offered me the job and I called my boss at the woman's club and uh, her name's Belia and I adore her. Like I aspire to be as cool as her. She's just, she's epic. She's a badass. And, um, and I called her and gave her my notice and she was like crying cause she was so relieved cause she was so worried about me because they were going to tell us the next day that they were closing until December and so literally by moments I kept a job literally by moments and right before the stimulus check fell off so I would be really effed right now um I like to think I wouldn't be that effed that I would have like I would just be resourcing and networking Mm -hmm. and figuring it out um but uh yeah that was a huge like whoa, this is a divine intervention because yeah. I had I would I had no plan. I was not trying to control the situation. I was just doing what I felt was the next right thing, and bam! Like not only did I get like this really amazing job, but I totally dodged a bullet on losing my job. And um, it's really hard because I have a lot of friends that are out of work right now, yeah. and that are extremely talented. And, um, and it, you know, it, I felt a little bit guilty, but I was like, when I was applying to it, I was like, but I'm leaving an open job behind me. And then it was out of my control. I did not, you know, right. close down the club. So they're, then they're just closed until December. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to try to reopen, but most of their members are older. Mm-hmm. So that's all they could do. And, uh, yeah, so it was, that was wild. That was really freaky. I Unreal. was like do I buy a lottery ticket today or how does this work? So yeah. Um, it felt like I I was exactly where I was supposed to be and that, you know, whoever, whatever higher power you believe in, it was, you know, it was happening. Mm -hmm. That was crazy. That was amazing. So, um, and I really gel really well with everyone there and it's just like, it's so beautiful. And so piece by piece, I'm adding my flavor to the menu and they had the menu really scaled down for COVID, mm-hmm. and, um, which is understandable, but they do um, these really great dinner bundles. So it's really easy for you to order and take it to go or whatever. Um, 
but uh, we're going to start building out the menu a little bit and adding some small plates. So I'm going to do my pork terrine. That's delicious. And um, I just did a uh, smoked trout riette at um, the farm dinner that I did out at Iron Shoe Farms. Um, and if you look up Steph Hedrick on YouTube, you can see my video. Yeah. Let's end on that. <laughs> I want to hear about your YouTube channel. So, uh yeah, during COVID, I was bored, 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 bored. And um, it's one of those things that I was like, someday when I have time. And then all of a sudden I had time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just take video on my iPhone. And then I've just been playing with the different editors and learning how to edit videos together. I'm also a musician. Um, I've played guitar since I was 10. So 31 years I've played. Uh, I started playing violin when I was two. Mm -hmm. So um, I headlined the main stage at First Avenue when I was 19, and then I kind of just went amateur because cooking took over. Yeah. Um, but I still love to play and everything. So I'm like, that'll be like kind of my next step is learning how to record music and then adding that into my videos. And it's just the the going through the motions of mm. it. And um, like I told you earlier, it's they're not great. I mean, they're fine, but. I have definitely a, a there's a learning curve to mm -hmm. it, you know. You can't unless that's what you went to school for, jump right out the gate and be awesome at it. But yeah. it's the process and, and I it, love it. And putting out a video like that where you go, I know this isn't the best. It's fun to think that but someday if I continue at this, I'll look mm -hmm. back in this and look like look how far it's gone. Yeah, and I want it to be an adventure channel. I just started with cooking videos because it has an easy beginning, middle and end if I do a recipe and then the farm is like awesome because I get so many different shots of all the animals and all the people and it's just it's really cute um but I also do a lot of adventuring so I I live tiny and I live in a um, tiny home that's about 150 square feet and then I also have a 30 foot um fifth wheel trailer that I pull behind and and the goal is to put that at a farm or uh, buy a campsite for it and then that's like my retirement cabin and it's <laughs> bought and paid for and done um, I've been renovating it uh, slowly over the last three years and it's super cool it's huge it's huge it's 30 feet and then I have my 12 foot long truck to haul it and um, I can back it up so I have major old man cred <laughs> And uh, it's that's such a like a dad flex. So the, the totally the, the towing. I love it, and um, it took a long time to get good at it. It's terrifying. It's totally terrifying. Like I started driving, and I'm like, "What did I do? Yeah, I can't like, do it at all." No, it it takes practice. Yeah. You can't just. It, it's a different part of your brain, and uh, the last time I went to the campgrounds, uh, I pulled in, and I'm by myself, like, and with this huge trailer. And like five dads come out from the different trailers and they're like all motioning for me to turn my wheel and doing all of the directional things. And I just started laughing really hard and I just kept doing my thing and, and I got it in just fine. Mm -hmm. And then I got out of my truck and there was a guy and his wife sitting right there. They were like my neighbors in their lawn chairs. And I got out of my truck and the guy was like, that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. <laughs> you would have thought somebody touched a thermostat somewhere. <laughs> he was like, you just, you had it. And all these guys are like, oh, crap. She didn't need our help. I'm like, I appreciate the help, but like, but I can do this now. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, 
the the positive thought there is that they'll think again the next time they assume I have to go help this person doing that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, I needed that when I was starting out. Like I did not know what I was doing, but yeah. now I I think I got it. And I ride motorcycle and I go fishing and I got a canoe. Got some things going I on. I got two dogs. Like yeah. So I kind of want to um branch out as I go along. But now with Lynn Hall blowing up, I it's. Again, when do I have time? But I still love doing it. I messed around with it a little bit today. so That's awesome. Yeah. Well, let's end it on that. I'll put your YouTube channel, your Instagram, and the show notes that people can go follow. Cool. We'll we'll blast it on our Instagram when we put the show up a a week from this Sunday. What day is it today? The 11th, I think? Tuesday the 11th. Yeah, the 11th. So this will be recorded on the 11th. So this will go up a week from this Sunday. Cool. Uh, Really appreciate you coming in. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. That was an hour 20. Yeah. That flew by. It's crazy. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. Uh, And I'll end it like I end everyone and say, have a nice day.